You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. John Wimber has been arguably one of the most influential leaders in the contemporary Western church. I think we have a picture of John, maybe. He has a beautiful face, a beautiful beard. If we don't, that's okay. Maybe he'll pop up in a minute. But uh, if you don't know John's story, he was the founder of the Vineyard Church Movement, which has planted over a thousand churches worldwide. It's led countless people to faith in Jesus, and it's like single-handedly transformed the music culture of the modern church. Like virtually every evangelical... There's John... Uh, every evangelical church in America, including ours, sings songs. We average like three vineyard church songs a week, <laughs> almost. Which, uh, and so like songs like Phil Wickham, which we sang this morning, is a vineyard church artist. And so all of that influence is traced back to John Wimber and the incredible things that God has done through him. Um, now, before he was a follower of Jesus, however, his life was a little different. Wimber was a successful musician. Um, he actually played saxophone and keys in the Righteous Brothers. You've lost that love and feeling, anybody? Uh, Unchained Melody? Yeah, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he was a professional musician, and in his autobiography, he describes himself as, quote, a chain-smoking, beer-guzzling, drug-abusing rock star, end quote. Now, when he was 29 years old, all of that was transformed for John because some friends of his invited him to a Quaker-led Bible study. He shows up drunk. He's not sure why he shows up in the first place, but he goes to appease his friends. And that night, his life is literally turned upside down and brought from death to life because the dude meets Jesus. Or Jesus meets him is probably a more accurate way to say it. Knocks John off his horse totally radically converts him. Um, and then, so John's now, you know, full of Jesus. And what's amazing is uh, right after his conversion, he's told, all right, his friends say, look, now that you're a Christian, you got to start doing two things immediately. Read your Bible and go to church. And John's like, well, I don't have a Bible and I've never been to a church in my life. And so his friends give him a Bible and John Wimber begins to devour the Bible, like reads it cover to cover in a matter of days. He reads it for hours a day. And then he and his wife one Sunday pack up and decide to visit a church uh, just down the street from their house. And so they walk into this church service. They sit in the back. They listen to the people sing or kind of murmur uh, through a few songs. And then a preacher gets up and gives a nice little talk and then prays and everybody goes home. And John leaves and is, is honestly a little underwhelmed by his first church experience ever. Uh, but he keeps coming back because he was told that's the right thing to do. So he keeps coming back and he keeps devouring the scriptures on his own. And over time, John begins to notice something. He notices a gap between what he sees in the Bible and what he sees in his local church. And so one Sunday, real innocent, remember he's a brand new baby Christian, like very innocent here. He walks up to one of the pastors after the service one Sunday and he says, hey, you know, pastor, I, I got a question. And his pastor said, what's up? And John said, well, when do we get to do the stuff? And this pastor's kind of confused and he says, what stuff? And John says, you know, the stuff. And he holds up his Bible and he says, the stuff in here, like 
We're, like the stuff we see Jesus and the disciples do, like healing the sick and casting out demons and prophesying and going out in the streets and preaching the gospel with boldness and seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And where's the like great joy that we read about and the passion for God and the passionate prayer meetings and the overflowing love? Like the stuff. Like when do we get to do the stuff in the Bible? And this, this pastor doesn't really know what to say, feeling a little bit of, of his own conviction by this new baby Christian. He looks at John and he says, well, John, you know, we really don't do that stuff here. And John says, you don't? He says, no. So John Wimber says, well, then what do you do here? And the pastor says, well, John, we kind of do what we've been doing every week. We show up here at this gathering and we sing a few songs and then you know, our teaching pastor gets up and gives a talk and then we pray and we go home to our normal everyday lives and then we come back the next week and we do it all over again and we just keep doing that every week. And John looked at this guy, honestly frustrated. This is a very famous quote from John Wimber. Looked at this guy, very frustrated and very disappointed and said, Are you serious? You mean I gave up drugs for this? <laughs> Like, I gave up drugs like and success and fame to follow Jesus, and you're telling me that this is what following Jesus is about? This is lame, John said. Like, I want something more than this. you got to be kidding me. I gave up drugs for this? I want something more than this. Now, the reason I tell you John's story is because I think John's story highlights two fundamental truths about us that are also just immediately relevant to where we find ourselves right now in this cultural moment. So here's truth number one, okay? John's story confronts you and me with the fact that built into the human heart is an insatiable longing for more. Psychologists have been arguing for years about what this longing is for, what will meet it, but here's one thing they all agree on. There's a hole in the human heart, and we are all desperately trying to fill it up. And John Wimber tried to fill it up with all the classic strategies, right? Success and money and fame and sex and drugs and rock and roll. He even tried to grow up a little bit and get married and start a family. That didn't work. The problem is the more he consumed, the more he wanted, and the more empty he felt. Until he met Jesus. And when John Wimber meets Jesus, he realizes, oh, okay, the hole in my heart and the hole in your heart is a Jesus-shaped hole. Because Jesus created your heart, your heart was made by him and for him, and only he can fill and satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. So John Wimber meets Jesus, his heart gets filled up with the love and the presence of Jesus, and all his deepest longings are satisfied. But then, but then, John joins a church, starts living the Christian life, and realizes this stinks. Like, this is terrible. I I thought Jesus is alive. These people are dead. I thought following Jesus was about great joy shared with brothers and sisters in Christ. This crap is boring. I want more. There has to be more to the Christian life than this. And I'm actually scared to ask you to raise your hand and ask if any of you have ever felt that way. Like I come to faith in Jesus and I had this experience. Oh my God, God loves me. God sees me. He forgives me. I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. And then like the, the days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years. And you're part of a church and you're living the Christian life. And you're like, this, there has to be more to it than this. This is lame. 
And this brings us to the second thing John's story highlights for us. Listen, something is missing in the church. And we have a gaping hole in the contemporary Western church. And I think Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, sums this up better than anybody I've ever seen. Now, this is a lengthy quote, so I'm just going to ask you to hang on. This is a, feels like a long introduction, but I just think we have to set this up, okay? Follow, follow along with me. Here's what Francis Chan says about the current state of the American church. Quote, The entertainment model of church was largely adopted in the 1980s and 90s, and while it alleviated some of our boredom for a couple of hours a week, it filled our churches with self-focused consumers rather than self-sacrificing disciples, check this out, attuned to the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps we're too familiar and comfortable with the current state of the church to feel the weight of this problem. But what if you grew up on a desert island with nothing but the Bible to read? Imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical evangelical church. Chances are you'd be shocked, kind of like John Wimber. Having read the scriptures outside the context of contemporary church culture, listen to this, you would be convinced that the Holy Spirit is as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things, you know, the stuff, to live lives that didn't make sense to the culture around them, and ultimately to spread the story of God's grace around the world. However, in many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of the Spirit in any manifest way. And this, I believe, is the crux of the problem. Now listen to this. This, this kept me up at night this week. No joke. If I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, you know what my main strategy would be? My main strategy would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. What disciples of Jesus and all of humanity needs more today than anything else is not to be filled with more information, more stuff, more experiences, but we desperately, more than anything, need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the big idea. If you haven't figured it out already, here's the big idea I just want to set on the table, have us all look at together and wrestle with this morning. There's a hole in the human heart. There's a hole in the church. Something is missing. And what Paul wants us to see in Ephesians 5 is that the missing something is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. And what we need more than anything is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Look with me now at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's just dive into this thing. Chapter 5, we'll start in verse 15. Here's what Paul says. Be very careful then how you live. It's a crazy place out there. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And this is where I want to camp out. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, what? Be filled with the Spirit. Notice, just keep your eyes on verse 18. Notice this contrast that Paul says. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk on wine, he says. And some of you are like, easy. I don't drink wine. I drink whiskey. Uh, or, you know, some of you are like, well, I don't drink alcohol at all. So I'm, you know, I'm doing what Paul says. Well, not so fast. 
Um, Paul is saying here, and scholars agree, what he's saying, he's not just talking about wine here. You fill in the blank. What Paul's talking about is anything that controls you. Paul's saying, look, don't fill up your life with anything that's just going to numb you and block you from what it is that you're truly longing for, which is the presence of God. He could have said, don't fill your life up with distractions. Hello, like TikTok and like Netflix and like YouTube and like social media and Facebook and all this stuff. He could have said, don't fill up your life with a youth sports culture. He could have said, don't fill up your life with the pursuit of work and money and success and porn and busyness and like you get it right? Don't fill up your life with this stuff because here's what's going to happen. When the newness of this stuff, you buy a new tool, you buy a new boat, whatever you're trying to fill it up with, when the newness wears off, when the numbness goes away, you're just going to wake back up to the same pain and emptiness that you've always had that's always been there. And so Paul says, hey, listen to me, Ephesians, don't waste your time. Don't fill up your life with all this other stuff because it ain't going to work. And you know that as soon as you sober up, you realize that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And he's just inviting everybody in this room to come along with him, to follow Jesus on the adventure and the life that you were made for, which is the spirit-filled life. And check this out. If you're in this room and you're a disciple, he's not inviting you. He's commanding you. Did you notice that? This is a command. Notice that in verse 18. It's not a suggestion. It ain't a technique he's suggesting. He's not saying, hey, try out this church strategy or this strategy for the Christian life. Be filled... If, he, if you're a disciple of Jesus, he's saying this is non-optional to your discipleship. And as a church, he's saying if you want to actually be a church, this is non-optional. We are commanded as a church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. Now, let me just address the elephant in the room, even if you don't know he's here. Um, he's the elephant in my life. Um, just within the last 100 years or so, there's been some or a lot of confusion and controversy around what it means to be spirit-filled and what it means to live a spirit-filled life. And just to show you my cards, I did not grow up um, in the charismatic tradition. Even my like theological training and my biggest influences, there hasn't been a, a, just a massive emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And I'm assuming that most of you in this room find yourself in that camp. And so... Um, What happens in that camp is sometimes the Trinity uh, gets reduced from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the mean one, the nice one, and the weird one. And so, you know, God the Father is like the mean one who's breathing down your neck, and Jesus is Mr. Nice Guy. He's not going to say anything to hurt your feelings. He's just here to, like, peace, you know, and love. And then the Holy Spirit is like the weird uncle that you hope doesn't show up to the family gatherings because you don't have any idea what to do with him, right? And, man, like... I have, I have repented of this a lot in the last several years and this week, and I just want to, I just want to, uh, and I know I speak on behalf of our pastors, but I just want to publicly repent of that. And, and of the ways that I have led out of that kind of thinking, because not only is it broken, but it's like abusive and destructive and weird and it's dead and it's not true. And the older I get, and the longer I follow Jesus, and especially the longer I pastor, the more I realize if, G- if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, proverbially speaking, in my life and show up to our family gatherings, we're dead in the water. Like, you better hope the, the weird one shows up at the family gathering because you're doomed if he doesn't. And, and so, theologically, like, I think we all would agree, right? Does anybody, does anybody who follows Jesus want to disagree with what I just said? Like, I think we all agree that we need to be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit because it's in the Bible. You can't really disagree with that. I just think that because 
there's been such a tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit that I think a lot of us, it's not even on our radar that we're commanded to go after this. And therefore, we're not equipped to go after this. And so that's what I want to do in the time we have left. I just want to try to equip us to run after a spirit-filled life. Can you go, can you go with me on that journey? Three simple questions I want to ask to help us get there, okay? I think this, to me, these are just the questions that arise naturally from the text. Number one, what in the world does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Number two, why do we need to be filled with the Spirit? And number three, how do I pursue being filled with the Spirit? Does that sound okay? Let's, let's look at that first question. Um, moving towards living a Spirit-filled life. Okay, first question we have to ask, what's Paul actually mean here? Okay, baseline question. What do you mean, Paul, be filled with the Spirit? And to help us answer that, Paul gives us this negative contrast. We've already pointed it out, right? He says in verse 18, well, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So when you get drunk, right, you come under the influence or the control of alcohol, right? You ever seen somebody drunk? You ever been drunk? Don't answer that. Uh, So like, you know, you come under the influence and the control of this substance. It's, it's not about, look, when the Bible talks about alcohol, by the way, it's not about how much you have, it's about how much of the alcohol has you. And when you get drunk, like you're intoxicated now, you've lost control. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's a good thing. So you, you're now inebriated. You're, you're, you, you, you've, you have become vulnerable to the power of something else. And with that image in your mind, you, you can begin to see now what Paul's getting at when he says, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means, I think we can put this on the screen, um, you allow your whole being to come under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. It means you are totally open and vulnerable to the presence of God. Your mind, body, soul, thoughts, feelings, desires, dreams, longings, all of that is controlled and led by the Spirit and no other influence. Are you with me? And to put this in an image, it means that you live your life completely soaked in the presence and the Spirit of God. Soaked. This verb to be drunk literally means to be soaked. Literally. So what Paul is saying here, he's commanding us to be soaked, not in wine or anything else, but be soaked in the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm going to risk getting a little bit teachy here, but I cannot, for the life of me, talk about this without making the connection that Paul wants you to make, which is that the, the fact that the whole reason... You don't want to know why Jesus came? Jesus did not just come to forgive you of your sins. He did do that. He didn't just come to forgive you of your sins and justify you so that now God's like kind of okay with you. You know what Jesus came to do? The central core of his ministry, Jesus came to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And don't take that from me again, like take it from the Bible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, this is John the Baptist speaking. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with, that can be translated in, the Holy Spirit and fire. That's amazing. This phrase, baptize you with the Spirit, occurs seven times in the New Testament. You see it in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Jesus himself in Acts 1-5 says it. John came to baptize you with water, but guess what, everybody? I came to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus and all the gospel writers are saying 
um, is that you know, Jesus' ministry is going to be marked by the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And what they're saying is that just like when you're baptized with water or in water and you're fully immersed and you're plunged into the water and you come out of the water soaked, Jesus came to fully immerse and soak you in the presence of God. By the way, just get that as an image. Soaking wet disciple, dripping wet with the presence of God. You want to know what that is? That's Jesus' vision for the Christian life. That's what it's supposed to look like. In the same way that you go in the water and you come out and the water's all over you, Jesus is like, when I'm done with you, you're going to have the Spirit all over you. Like you're going to walk the streets of Paragold and the Spirit's going to ooze and overflow and like drip off of you because I came to, I came to soak you in the presence of God. That's, that's Jesus' vision for the Christian life and for every church, by the way. And John Wimber just noticed like, hey, that's not here. Like that just seems to be missing in all the churches that I've ever been a part of. Francis Chan, so many guys are saying, like, that's what's missing. And Jesus' vision is that we would, as a people, be so soaked and filled with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit would overflow and spill out of us and that the whole earth would be flooded and saturated with God's glory. Therefore, the heart, the crux of Jesus' ministry is all about soaking you in the presence of the living God, the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You with me? That's what it means. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear that, you think, well, gosh, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I have been for years. And like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't really say that my life feels drenched in God's presence. Like, there's, there's moments or days or whole seasons where like, I struggle to even feel God's presence. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily walking around just oozing the Spirit of God all the time. And I, I like... If, 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 if that's you, I think that brings us to a really powerful application that Paul has for us in this passage he wants us to make, which is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time thing that happens to you when you get saved. But it's an ongoing reality that, check this out, you are commanded to pursue for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. To be filled with the Spirit means that, 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 that you're... You're running after this. It's like this isn't when Paul says be filled with the Spirit, okay, in Greek, um, it, it literally translates. If you were to, it, we, don't, we don't translate it literally because it's so cumbersome in English, but if you were to literally translate that phrase, it's keep on continuously being filled with the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Keep, keep on continuously being filled with the Spirit. So what Paul's saying is like you don't need a one time filling, you need an ongoing filling. Which brings me to my second question that I, I said we were going to ask. Why is that? Why do I need to be filled with the Spirit constantly, over and over? And if, if you were to zoom out and read the rest of Ephesians, or read the whole New Testament for that matter, you would see that the reason why we need to be filled with God's Spirit over and over again is because on this side of heaven, you and I are constantly leaking. God is limitless. There's always more of Him to have. And you and I are always leaking. We're like a bucket with holes in it. And the first thing that happens when you leak, here's the first thing that happens. You forget who you are in Jesus and you lose a sense of God's love for you as your true identity. And you forget that there is no way on God's green earth you can do what God has called you to do in your own power. That's what you lose. Let me say it this way. 
I, and this happens to me every day, um, I, I'm constantly leaking and I'm constantly losing my sense of identity and dependence. My sense that God's lo- God loves me, He's with me, and my sense that I need His power and I can't do this on my own power. That's why, by the way, I've burned out before as a pastor. And this is why Mike Pilavachi and Simon Ponsonby, who are, who are two of the best New Testament scholars from the charismatic tradition, they say that the, the, the primary reason why you need an ongoing filling of the Spirit is because when the Spirit of God fills you, you are flooded with a greater sense of two things, God's love and God's power in your life. That's what happens. That's why you need to be filled. You need to be filled with a fresh sense of God's love and God's power in your life. And I actually want to camp out here for just a second because I feel a huge burden for us to experience more of this. Um, like, let's talk about God's love for a second and, and its relationship to the Spirit. Um, when you get filled with the Spirit, you are filled afresh with an increased experience of intimacy with God. I would argue that's the primary thing the Spirit wants to do. Flood you with God's love for you in Christ. Charles Finney, uh, one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century, he wrote about an experience when he was overwhelmed with the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit afresh. And here's what he says. This is from his journal. Quote, Waves and waves of liquid love. No words can express that wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. Waves and waves of liquid love overflowing in his heart because he was filled with the Spirit. Listen, some of you immediately go into like, oh, this is sensationalism. Let me just like, that's not what this is. Um, what, what Charles Finney in the New Testament, for that matter, is describing is not sensationalism or like being filled with the Spirit is always this mountaintop experience. Here's what Finney's getting at. When you get filled with the Spirit, there, again, you, you get this sense in your gut and in your bones that God not only loves you, but He likes you, He enjoys you, He delights in you, and He's so happy to be with you. And that's the primary role of the Holy Spirit. It's never Old news, he never gets tired of pointing you to the Father's love for you in Christ. He never gets tired of reminding you that you are God's beloved child. That's who you are. That's the first thing that goes when you leak. You forget who you are. The Spirit says, that's who you are. Abba's child. Listen, i got to read this. Romans 5.5, here's what Paul says. He says, God's love, because Paul writes a lot about this, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice that language of pouring. God wants to soak you in His love, and He does it through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, and I love this, because you were His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're God's child, you've also been made an heir. Paul's getting at your true identity in Christ. Like I said a second ago, God didn't, didn't just send Jesus to forgive you so that God can like be okay with you. Well, you're not a sinner anymore, so we're kind of on neutral terms. I guess you can come to heaven when you die. No. Jesus came to baptize you into the family of God. He came with adoption papers. He came to rescue you and make you a child of God. And, and Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of Jesus into your heart. And from deep 
check this out. From deep within you, the Spirit is speaking and He's crying out. And you know what He's saying? Abba, Father. It's Jesus' voice. The Spirit is speaking with Jesus' voice and saying, what was true about Jesus is now true about you. Jesus' Abba is now your Abba, which that word Abba is like, I wish we had a whole sermon on that. Like, can we, I mean, this is like a, this is an Aramaic term that means daddy. And never before in history, like in all of antiquity, was this word ever used for a deity. It's far too intimate. Like you would never call God Abba. Maybe you're earthly dad, but never. And Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus calls him Abba. And now Jesus has invited and called us into the same relationship with the Father that he has. He has shared that with us. So if God is your Father, he's not first and foremost your king or your ruler or your judge, though he is certainly all those things. But if, if, if you're in Christ, God is first and foremost your Abba, your daddy, because that's who he is to Jesus. And like, even as I say that, for many of you, that has no emotional impact on you. I know because I've sat in your seat. I hear a lot of sermons and a lot of teaching and listen to a lot of podcasts and read the Bible a lot. And th- this does, sometimes doesn't move the needle of my heart at all. Like it just washes off of me. There's so, so many of us would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I know God loves me because the Bible tells me so. I know God loves me in the theological sense. But there is a massive difference between knowing God's love as a doctrine that lives in your head and knowing God's love as a delight that lives in your bones. And as a guy who's been a pastor for the last 17 years, in my experience, this is by far the number one thing we struggle with in the Christian life, is just believing truly in our bones that God loves us. There's, there's just a massive, I'm telling you, when you leak, this is what goes. There's a massive disconnect between our head and our hearts, and and we don't, we don't often feel like God loves us or like He likes us. And let me tell you something. That is Satan's number one strategy he wants to use to destroy your life. David Siemens uh, is a, was a scholar and a great spiritual director. He says it like this. Um, Many Christians find themselves defeated by the most powerful psychological weapon that Satan uses against Christians. This weapon has the effectiveness of a deadly missile. Its name, low self-esteem or shame. Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of shame, inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. This feeling shackles many Christians. Listen to this. We all know the truth in here, right? That God loves us. Listen to this. Although they understand in their minds their position as God's sons and daughters, they are tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority, and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. Listen, Satan's number one strategy is to convince you that you're an orphan and God doesn't love you. And he will play on your wounds and your psychological vulnerabilities to, to, put, to, to get you there. You know, we all come into this room broken and beat up by life. Like we've been broken on the wheels of living, right? Everybody. Childhood wounds, rejection, abandonment. And you know what Satan does? He's behind the scenes whispering in light of all of that, this is who you are. This is who you are. You're worthless, and nobody could love you. And this is why you need to be filled with the Spirit. (laughs) You know what Paul says? Paul says when you get filled with the Spirit, He is inside you literally screaming, Paul says. That's the word, screaming and crying. No, that's not true. 
You're a son or a daughter of God. You no longer have to live in the fear of abandonment and rejection. The Holy Spirit wants you to know, right now, this is a word for everybody in this room or watching online. The Holy Spirit wants you to know right now that the shame you carry cannot survive the presence of the Father's love. Cannot survive. So what burdens do you have of shame that you need to unburden this morning? Because the Spirit wants to take those. Like I heard somebody say one time, that the Holy Spirit just wants you to know that God loves who you really are, whether you like it or not. (laughs) And the reason you need to be filled with the Spirit again and again is so that you can learn to like it. And you can learn to accept what's true about you. Why can't we just accept it? God's crazy about me. And I don't have to feel any shame about saying that. The Spirit's telling me that. I'm Abba's child. And if you're in Christ, so are you. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit. He wants to flood you with your true identity as the beloved child of God. And He wants to flood you with the power of God. Which is the second reason why you desperately need to be filled with God. Listen, you know, we, we talked last week. Jared did such a great job unpacking how all the stuff, right, that Jesus did in His ministry, He did by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the stuff. The stuff of the healing of the sick and the casting out demons and the proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and all that stuff. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them in John 14, 12, you're going to go do greater things than these. Meaning the ministry that I have began, you are now going to continue through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you're going to receive power, power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you'll be my witnesses throughout the ends of the earth. And then throughout the book of Acts, you keep seeing this pattern over and over and over of disciples being filled. Like they're baptized in the Spirit, but it ain't a one-time reality. Over and over and over, you see like Peter filled with the Spirit of God, Stephen filled with the Spirit, Paul filled with the Spirit, and then they go on to proclaim the gospel with all this boldness and courage. And it's like they're completely different people than who they were in the Gospels. You read about them in the Gospels and they're anxious, they're filled with anxiety and overwhelmed with fear and they're self-absorbed and then they get filled with the spirit and they're just courageous and bold even in the face of deadly opposition like they get their tails beat physically literally to the point of death and then they get up and they walk away rejoicing because they got beat up for jesus now where did that kind of power come from did they all get together and do a book study (laughs) did they do a sermon series Did they like get together and have a class on the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm not saying any of those things are, I think we have to do all those things. You know where that power came from? It came from, it came from opening themselves up and allowing themselves to be filled afresh with the spirit of the living God. You want to know what that means for us? It means that the crossing church is perfectly designed to fail if the Spirit of God doesn't show up. Do you realize that? We have a mission to see the stuff of the kingdom of God break into northeast Arkansas and God's kingdom come and His will be done in northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. How on earth are we going to do that stuff apart from a dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit? It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Like... How are we going to see lost people saved and people healed and delivered from demonic oppression and make disciples and see the kingdom of God flourish? And it's, we are perfectly designed to fail if the Spirit of God does not fill us 
and empower us. And that's not just true about our church. Like, you realize that's true about your personal life? You know that, that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle in the book of, like, First Opinions, chapter 2 or whatever? Like, do you know that's not in the Bible anywhere? And you know it's, like, fundamentally not true about you? Did you know that just by nature of being human, you have more on you than you can possibly handle? That's why you need to eat and sleep and you can't be alone. Like, you're a dadgum needy creature. And you have way more on you than you could possibly handle. You want to know why God did that? To tell you and remind you and reinforce to you that you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit of the living God. Because ain't no way that I can, like, make disciples out of my kids. Lord, help me. Have mercy. I can't keep my cool. I can't, I can't stay close to my wife. I can't be a good friend. I can't be a good employee. I can't be nothing apart from the presence of the Spirit of God in my life. I'm, I'm going to read this at the risk of running long. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to do it real quick, real quick. Um, I'll, I just read this last night. I, I read Every day I try to read this book called Everyday Prayers by Scotty Smith. And this is what he said last night as a pastor. He said, and I just, I just knew it was for me, maybe it's for us. He said, Father, I forsake the illusion of my competency. <laughs> And cast myself on you, the God who raises the dead, beginning with Jesus. I'm not facing deadly perils like Paul, but I am facing broken people I cannot fix. Injustices in the world I cannot right. Lingering wounds I cannot heal. Stubborn addicts I cannot free. An aging process I cannot reverse. Cold marriages I cannot thaw. And my own heart that I cannot change. Forgive me for not wanting to need the gospel, your spirit, and community as much as you say that I do. Lord, help us. You know why you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you can't do any of this in your own power. You'll die trying. And many have. Now, that brings us to our last question to close, and we'll try to run through this real quick. If all that's true... The last question we have to ask is, okay, well, how do I pursue being filled with the Spirit then? What are some things I can do? And I just, I just took and adapted this from Justin Holcomb. Real quick, he gives us five practical things, and to help you remember, they all start with R. So if you're taking notes, here goes. First thing that he mentions to open yourself to the Spirit is repentance. Augustine once said, we must empty ourselves of all that fills us so that we may be filled with what we are empty of. It's pretty much impossible to be filled with the Spirit if you're filling your life with things that you're looking to to be for you, but only God can be for you. And the Bible calls that sin or idolatry. And so the question is, what are you filling your life with? What are you doing to cope and fill the void? And to repent means you turn away from that and you empty yourself of that and you allow yourself to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. And the good news is God is a dad who's gracious and he wants to meet you in that place. You know, um, I read once that, that something that said, um, religion says, I've, uh, I've messed up, my dad's going to kill me. But the gospel says, I've messed up, I need to call my dad. Like, repentance is like, I've, I need to call my dad, and I need to confess and say I'm sorry. And I need to get these things out of my life, and I need to be filled with God's Spirit. Two, make room. Make room. Not only does sin cut you off from the Holy Spirit, but busyness does as well. And we've preached a ton of sermons on this, so I'm not going to harp on this. But let me just, it's, it's an ongoing conversation that we have. It's not going away. We have to find ways to slow down and be with Jesus. It's the number one goal of a disciple, guys. 
Like it means we're going to have to cut some stuff out of our life and we're going to have to adopt the spiritual disciplines like of silence and solitude and reading scripture and prayer and fasting and Sabbath and life and community. I love this definition from Henry Nowen. He defines the spiritual disciplines as boundaries that keep time and space open for God to create a place where God's gracious presence can be acknowledged and responded to. So just to get practical, what's one thing you can do this week to carve out some space to be alone with God in prayer and in His Word? Like, make room to be filled with the Spirit. Third, risk. Maybe one of the biggest blocks in your life of being filled with the Spirit is that your life is too safe. And I have all fingers pointing back at myself here. Um, You know, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Why do we need the comforter if our lives are already too comfortable? Like we've said before, faith is spelled risk. And I can say that some of the times I felt the closest to God is when I've been the most desperate and needy because I've stepped out and taken a risk. And there's a pastor in Long Beach who's just been pushing us on this and like encouraging us to take a risk every day, either by praying for healing, sharing your faith, or giving generously. So what if we just started paying attention to where the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention and prompt us to do one of those things? Because most likely he is every day. And if you'll step out and take a risk, he will, guess what, fill you and give you what you need, which is himself. And these last two are short, okay? So fourth request. How do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ask. There's this great promise in Luke eleven thirteen. It's this simple. Jesus says, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? James 4 says we have not because we ask not, right? Some of us are not being filled again with the Spirit because we're simply not asking to be. And Jesus says, look, you know the great thing about my dad? He's not trying to hold out on you. Ask and you will receive. He wants to give you this gift. Ask. And finally, If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit afresh, you have to receive. Repent, make room, risk, request, receive. Listen, multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the gift or the promise. And the only way you get a gift or a promise, you know how to get it? You simply receive it. Notice in Ephesians 5, Paul's command to be filled is passive. It's something that happens to you. So it's not something you can do for yourself. And yet, you're commanded to be filled. So let me just ask you a question, because language matters. How do you obey a passive command? Be filled is something that Jesus has to do for you. So, and yet, yeah, receive. (laughs) Thank you, Randy. Receive. And I, I stole this little trick from Chuck Gashwin. He's one of our pastors here. If I were to tell you to act out, love one another with your body, well, that's probably a little, maybe that's getting a little too intimate. Uh, I literally didn't think about that until it just came out of my mouth. So um, if, I were, <laughs> if I were to tell you to act out with your body, uh, bear one another's burdens. Like, <laughs> you could probably do that. You could probably walk up to someone, like, let's do some social distancing, but you could probably walk up to someone, you could probably put your arm around them, you could probably hold them up, you could probably take something off of them, like, you could act that out. If I told you to act out with your body, be filled with the Holy Spirit, how would you do it? Can, I mean, how would you do it? 
you would just you would just do this, I suppose. You would that's right, Kent, or you would do this, I suppose, which is I surrender. This is why hands up, police will say. This is a posture of surrender. I got nothing left. I'm wide open. I'm I'm not vulnerable to any other power, just vulnerable to you. Take me. Right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit is to receive. And to close, I just want to invite us to practice that together.